This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, our annual rundown of the best science books of the year. And we want to know what your favorite science books of 2017 were. So give us a call. Our number, 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK. Or you can tweet us at SciFry. But first, the Voyager 1 spacecraft is the farthest from Earth human-made object, and it's no longer even in our solar system. Recently, space scientists monitoring the spacecraft needed to slightly reposition the radio transmission system on board to allow Earth to keep listening to the faint signals. But the system Voyager normally uses to keep its communications antenna pointed toward the Earth, well, it was failing. What to do? Here to talk about the creative solution and other selected short subjects in science is Maggie Kurthbaker, senior science writer at 538. Welcome back to the program, Maggie. Thanks for having me. So what's going on with the Voyager 1? Well, so normally Voyager uses uh, a system of thrusters to kind of adjust that communications antenna and keep it pointing toward Earth so that we can actually see what it is seeing, understand what it is finding. And all of a sudden, that system of thrusters stopped working. Um, so they came up with this solution, which was to use a different set of thrusters that have not been turned on since, well, since I was a fetus. And <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The last time this system was used was November 8th, 1980. And somehow, it still works. They turned it on. The other thrusters worked great, and they got Voyager pointing back the way it needed to go. Do you think there's got to be somebody in the control room who says, okay, here we go, <laughs> ready to push a button, <laughs> something like that. Let's give it a go. Um, it, it's kind of amazing. Like, I, I can't imagine taking a car even from, you know, a relatively benign environment like a farm outbuilding and yeah. turning on an engine that hasn't been turned on in 37 years and having it well, work. It, it worked. Okay, so it's, it, it worked. So what does that mean for Voyager's journey now? It basically means that we will get an extra two or three years out of Voyager than we thought we would. Um, you know, we had sort of assumed that when these thrusters failed, we were going to stop being able to get signals back from Voyager. And now it looks like we have another way of getting it pointed toward us. It just keeps going. Okay, let's move on to a little closer to home. There, there's news this week about a controversial oil pipeline, something we've heard about. Yep, the Keystone oil pipeline sprung a leak near the town of Aberdeen, South Dakota on November 16th, and it spilled about 5,000 barrels of oil into the ground. Uh, but now Reuters is reporting that the risks, risk assessments that were used to sell state governments on that existing pipeline were drastically out of step with what the system's actual failure rate has been. So these regulatory documents that were used to obtain a South Dakota operating permit TransCanada claimed that, you know, a leak of more than 50 barrels of oil shouldn't occur more than once every 7 to 11 years. And instead, what we've seen is that that pipeline has already spilled about 5,800 barrels in three different spills in just seven years. And all of those took place in the Dakotas. Well, I mean, it was just a, fill, a spill a few weeks ago, wasn't there? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one on November 16th. Uh, that's the biggest. And, you know, this document is suggesting that really either TransCanada was severely underplaying its risk assessment process or they are doing something that's not meeting the requirements for construction and environmental safety. So there are South Dakota commissioners that are now questioning whether the company violated its license. 
There's no talk about having to, to redo the license or anything. Like, uh, I don't I don't know for certain about that, but it sounds like there's going to be some political pressure applied here. Okay, let's go on to other news. There's a speaking of controversy. There's controversy over some studies involving gender and appearance that are quite interesting. Right. Uh, there's a French psychologist named Nicolas Gauguin who made a name for himself publishing research that seemed to shore up some of these modern Western gender norms as innate fact. Uh, things like, you know, women are sexier when they wear high heels and men are more likely to help a woman with feminine flowing hair. Uh, but there are a number of things going on here. You know, first, Gauguin publishes a ton of papers every year. He's had eight come out in 2017 alone. And, you know, these aren't theoretical papers either. They involve a lot of real world experimentation and collaborators. But the collaborators are almost never mentioned or credited. And these researchers, James Heathers and Nick Brown, they also found some peculiarities in Gauguin's data sets, you know, things like these tidy round averages that it's unlikely anyone could possibly reach given the number of participants you had to divide the averages by, um, or effect sizes that were larger and more significant than anything you'd usually expect to see in social psychology. So, you know, there's some big problems. Yeah. And over the last couple of years of making, you know, making inquiries about this, uh, Gauguin has really failed to respond to most of the questions this pair has asked him about. So now they are making these findings public online in blog posts. Wow. So we'll, maybe we'll get a little bit uh, pressure for him to respond after that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's going to be, I made me think a lot of like the arsenic life uh, controversy oh, from yeah. several years oh, ago yeah. where, you know, instead of kind of addressing critiques of a paper through kind of the slow peer review process, people went straight to the internet and retractions happened pretty quickly after mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Well, finally, there's a newly found relative of the Velociraptor, it, it, but it's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> dino duck they're calling. It's like a dino duck. Well, so it looks sort of like a swan with flippers for hands and crocodile teeth and Velociraptor claws. Made by committee, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it is uh, It is oh, so weird looking that when this first turned up in a private collection in 2015, a lot of researchers thought it was a fake. Hmm. Um, but they've put it through some scanning tests with a particle accelerator, and it looks like this Rapto Duck Swan Croc Penguin is uh, the real deal. Wow. It, it might even be the first aquatic dinosaur ever found. You know, things like plesiosaurs that we're used to thinking about as dinosaurs. Those aren't actually dinosaurs. They're reptiles. Uh, so this could be our aquatic dinosaur. Um, you know, I was just the thinking link. that it's kind of, yeah, the, <laughs> the link. Yeah. You know, it's a reminder. Evolution doesn't always make you handsome, but it just might make you handy. That's why I have a face for radio. Thank you, Maggie. <laughs> Maggie Kurth-Baker is senior science writer at uh, 538. And now it's time to play and check in. No, we're not going to play. We're going to we're going to check in in state of science. This is KER St. Louis Public Radio, KKDN. Iowa Public Radio News. This is where we take a look at the the science in the states. And this week we're traveling to the Bayou of Louisiana. And as you know, the area is susceptible to hurricanes and erosions, and that's not. That's not good when all that stuff goes away. But the good news is that land loss has slowed in the area in the past few years. But the coastline, on the other hand, still loses about an acre every hour. This is due to climate change, oil drilling, rising sea levels. And now there is another culprit to add to the list, something called the, the mealybug. Here to tell us about that is Travis Lux, 
coastal reporter out of WWNO in New Orleans. Welcome to Science Friday. Hey, Ira. How's it going? Is this uh, the same kind of bug we're all familiar with, the mealybug? Yeah, it's. Uh, we don't know where it, how it got here, really. We know that it came from China or Japan, uh, probably on a, a boat. You know, there's a mm. lot of international shipping that comes up and down the Mississippi River. Um, but it showed up here at the mouth of the river where it spits into the Gulf of Mexico, and it's got a huge appetite for this plant called the rosocane, which is basically everywhere in this part of the coast. Mm-hmm. You talked to state biologist Todd Baker, I, I understand, and he described the importance of the rosocane plant, and we have a clip from your interview with him. Rosocane is the dominant vegetation of the Mississippi River Delta. It's kind of the linchpin that holds these wetlands together. It fights erosion very well. It sustains the wetlands where they are very well. It takes a lot to kill it. Well, so what's the difficulty in wiping out these bugs? Well, it's tough because it kind of just showed up, so people aren't super familiar with what to do. And what they do in China is they just burn it and kind of start fresh. Hmm. But here in South Louisiana, there's a lot of oil and gas infrastructure in the coastal marshes. There's a lot of pipelines and that kind of thing. So burning it would not be very safe. Um, they've thought about pesticides, but there's also a lot of you know industrial fishing that happens in these right. marshes. So that could be bad for the shrimp. So they they just really don't know what to do. They're still trying to figure out um, what the best option is going to be, frankly. Now, I know there's a group that's looking at interesting ways to restore the coast by dropping mangrove seeds. Are they seeds or the little plants from, from airplanes? Yeah, so they're not technically seeds. They're basically like little baby plants that are in a little pod. And so, yeah, what they're doing is they're plucking them from these mangrove trees and they're loading them into crop duster airplanes and then flying low over the marsh and just basically carpet bombing the marsh, hoping that these mangrove trees are going to uh, take root and, uh, and basically take the place of uh, the marsh grasses where there's currently marsh, um, but which is rapidly going mm. away. So they're hoping these mangrove trees will help create that buffer zone that the marsh used to provide from storm surge and hurricanes and that kind of thing. Well, but sort of the idea makes sense, but the, the coast is not made up of mangroves right now. Why, why do they think it would grow? Yeah, well, actually, this is kind of interesting. Mangroves, these black mangroves that they're using, um, they're not invasive. They they do grow here, but typically throughout history, they 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 kind of wouldn't last. Uh, mm-hmm. They they can't really survive hard freezes. But because of climate change, because the environment's getting warmer, it's getting a little bit more favorable for this uh, man- these mangroves to grow. So they're thinking like maybe actually because of climate change, uh, this could work. Yeah, so it's become more like southern Florida where you have the mangroves. Right, yeah. Growing. Get a little bit warmer and then they might grow. Um, There is a state official restoration plan from the Coastal Restoration and Protection Agency. Are any of these issues included in that plan? How is the state looking to restore the coast? Well, the the mangrove seed bombing is not included in the state's uh, big plan. Uh, this is kind of a new one. But the state does have a plan. Uh, they have a, a big master plan for, for rebuilding the coast. Um, uh, it focuses on really big projects, things like building levees and rebuilding marshes artificially and using uh, the muddy Mississippi River water to rebuild some land. Um, but the trouble is that that plan is not fully funded yet. It's going to cost about $50 billion, but we don't have all the money in the state. Only about $20, 20 billion rather, has been huh. secured. Why am I not surprised? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Travis. <laughs> Travis sure Lux, thing. coastal reporter at WWNO in New Orleans.
We're going to take a break, and when we come back, it's our annual Best Science Books of the Year show. We'll have uh, our favorites, and you can call in with yours, our number, 844-724-8255. Tis the season for giving, and so we will have uh, science books. And we're also including in our upcoming segment books for kids, 844-724-8255. Or, of course, you can tweet us at SciFry. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. It has been a long and bumpy road for science in 2017. A few examples. President Trump declares he, was, he wants to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord. There's an advisor to the EPA who believes the air is too clean to breathe. And yes, more reports of sexual harassment in the sciences, this time on Antarctic expeditions. So maybe the best thing to do this holiday season is to take some time to reconnect with what makes science great. Stories of discovery and wonder, the majesty of nature and space. And we're going to do that by highlighting the best science books of 2017. And joining me to help discuss their top science picks are Deborah Blum, director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT, publisher of the online magazine Undark, and a Pulitzer Prize winner. Welcome back to Science Friday, Deborah. Thanks. It's great to be here, Ira. Nice to have you. Maria Popova is also with us, editor and founder of BrainPickings.org. Always good to have you. Always a highlight of my year. Wow. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to recover from that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Deb, let's start with you. Uh, which science book uh, got you the most animated this year? Well, I want to talk about Code Girls by Liza Mundy first because it was a book in which I sort of hounded my husband around the house saying, let me read you this, let me read you this. This is really amazing. And the book is a really riveting story of the women who during World War II were engaged in the secret cyber, cipher, deciphering of codes of both the Japanese and the German codes. And one of the things I love about the book is these were school teachers and actuaries and factory workers who just had an unusual gift for math and pattern and language. They came from small towns all around the country, and, and they went wholeheartedly in, into trying, as they saw it, to you know, save the soldiers abroad, mm. understand what was going on, and... Liza Monday, who writes this book, does this incredible job of telling the lives of these young women and explaining the sort of pattern recognition and math and technology of code breaking. And I think it speaks to the fact that um, I'm being a, a really wonderful person when I say I couldn't do this. If, you know, when I was reading these code explanations, I could not have felt dumber. And yet, I just love this book. It, oh, it was riveting and exciting and a little inspiring start wow. to finish. You know, it, it seems like there are a lot of stories like this, right, coming to light these days about women and code breaking and, and uh, finally getting some daylight about what they've been doing all these years. What makes, what makes whole... this one different? Is there anything different about this one? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, in part, you know, it's because a lot of the books that have come out recently, say, Davis Sobel's Wonderful Glass Universe or uh, even Hidden Figures, which right. tends to be a book that everyone knows, 
are about women who were trained as scientists. One of the things I loved about this book was that, you know, these these were young women who were just smart, and they hadn't even had the opportunities, many of them, to train in scientists. Or, and, and yet you could see just the sort of spark and crackle of their intelligence. Mm-hmm. It, it was also unrecognized in the same way that we see in some of these other books. There's a, a, a really vivid passage early in this book when Congress is thanking the brilliant men of the code-cracking units, right, without a mention of the fact that all these women were there. And I think the other thing for me is it's, it's a really great behind-the-scenes look at war. Um, and the technology and science of war in a way that, you know, is thought-provoking and eye-opening. So I think it worked for me on all of those levels. Really interesting. Uh, Maria, you've included a posthumous book of essays by Oliver Sacks. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and, and I mean, I want to also second what you opened with, which is that um, I have fewer selections this year because I actually think it's been a very disappointing year for literature, especially for nonfiction, because what great science books do and what Oliver Sacks' books do, whether they come at it from microbiology or astrophysics, is humble us into remembering that we're just a tiny part of a vast and complex universe. And instead, what much of nonfiction has done is the opposite, inflate Mm. us and our blink of time that is this political moment into a kind of pre-Copernican self-importance with all the self-help and politics and identity politics and all the various forms of human selfing, you know. And so it's lovely to see books that actually celebrate science as a counterpoint to this endemic civilizational self-importance. And Oliver Sacks has done that for half a century. In this book, it's a collection of his essays. A few of them have been published before in things like um, New York Magazine and the New York Times, uh, but some of them never before, and he worked on them until the very end, essays on memory and creativity and Darwin's love of flowers and Freud's little-known contributions to neurology. But it's also a very personal book for him because the thing for which has been so beloved, this kind of friendly curiosity that he takes to his patience, Mm -hmm. he now turns on himself as he confronts perhaps the hardest parts of existence, aging and ultimately dying. Yeah, I remember him telling me uh, the last time I saw him before he died, I think you were there also. Mm -hmm. He said, I have two more books in me. Yeah. And well, you know, you'll see them after I've gone, basically. Is this one of them? This is one of them. And there's a collection of his letters in the works, which I'm especially excited about because he was such a prolific and beautiful letter writer. Hmm. Deb, you have a book on your list that Dr. Sachs might have had a bit of fun reading. It's called Quackery. What's that about? Yes, I love this book. So this is a co-authored book by Lydia King, who is an Omaha-based MD, and Nate Peterson, who's a librarian uh, in Oregon. And it explores sort of the past history of uh, weird medical cures and scientific oddities and the way we try to treat each other and and, and the examples from it and, and the fun that they have with it. It's just you can pick it up at any given moment and go, wow, were we wrong about that? Give, give me give me an I example think, or two of what, what we were wrong about. Okay, so so this one is just to me was hilarious. But back in uh, 
the um, 18th century, people were just, you know, starting to recognize that tobacco was a kind of pick-me-up stimulant. And so they developed an idea that if people drowned and they would just blow tobacco smoke up their butts, right, <laughs> that would revive them from drowning death. I, and I actually, they used a bellows. And I started thinking about it later, and I thought, yeah, you know, if you were not quite dead and someone was bellowing hot tobacco smoke up you, it might really wake you up. So you could argue, right, that they at least had a point there. But it was the kind of thing that I found myself just laughing out loud when I read it. And this book is fun that way. It has many of these kind of horrible, ridiculous examples. Now, 26 years of doing this show, I thought I had heard everything. (laughs) 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 But you're blowing smoke now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Maria, you... (laughs) And and I... Yes, go ahead. I do want to say that I, I, like, I'm going to sound more optimistic about this year's science books, I think, than uh, Maria just did in part because it wasn't that I said there's an endless list, but, but a lot of the books that I looked at this year were books I deeply loved, right? I, I found myself thinking, man, there are such smart, interesting talented science writing going on right now. So I'm probably a little Mm. more bubbly and excited about the state of this year's science books. Mm. Let's let's move on to Maria. uh, Well, that's that's actually a really great segue because I think uh, we get into the question of standards. And it's very subjective. It's Mm -hmm. very personal. But I think there are plenty of scientists who do a fine job of making science comprehensible and interesting. But there are very, very few who are able to do that and make it enchanting and even beautiful. And I think Jan 11 is one of them, the uh, book Black Hole Blues, which I'm I'm, I'm, I'm taking a a slight liberty, a a loophole in our uh, selection standards because it's a book that was published last year, uh, though the paperback came out a couple months ago. But what merits its inclusion this year, quite apart from the fact that it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read in my entire life, is that it's the definitive chronicle of the discovery that won the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics, which is certainly the most significant discovery in astrophysics in our lifetime, and probably really since Galileo, the detection of gravitational waves, the sound of space-time. And, um, you know, Jan 11 is, in addition to being one of the preeminent astrophysicists who study black holes, uh, a novelist and really a beautiful writer. In fact, I consider her a 2007 novel about Kurt Gödel and Alan Turing, one of the great literary masterworks of the century. So she brings this literary sensibility to um, the story of this colossal half-century climb to build this instrument. And... um, you know, I'm a huge fan of the marine biologist Rachel Carson, who who catalyzed the environmental movement with her book Silent Spring, whose legacy is being demolished by the present administration. But uh, she um, wrote about the oceans in a really unusual way that pioneered an aesthetic of poetic prose about science. And when she received the National Book Award in her acceptance speech, she she articulated this conviction that there is no separate literature of science because she said the aim of science is to discover and illuminate truth, which is also the aim of literature. Mm -hmm. And Black Hole Blues is one of those rare books, an achievement really, where that conviction comes through on every page in every stunning sentence. 
Mm-hmm. Let's let's see if we can go to the phones. Got a call on eight four four seven two four eight two five five is is our number. Let's go to uh, Groveland, Florida. Ralph, hi, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, um, I have two favorite books. Or actually, I just thought of a third one, but I'll throw in the two. Uh, first one is called Deep Nutrition by Dr. Kate Shanahan, the nutrition consultant for the Lakers. And you're, you're fading out there. Nope. Let me try this. How is it now? Give me your second book. Hello? Yes, your second book. Is that any better? I yes, mean, much better. The sec- Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, did you hear with the first one all right? Let's go to the second one. Uh, the second one is called, just came out, I think, called Growing a Revolution by, Doc, by David Montgomery. The subtitle of it is Bringing Our Soil Back to Life which talks about how regenerative agriculture can help reverse climate change. It's fascinating. Yeah, uh, thanks for that uh, recommendation. Yeah, agriculture is locking up carbon in the soil. We've had farmers on who talked about uh, new methods of farming, like growing crops over the wintertime, overgrowing, and things like that. And um, more more kinds of books like that, I think, will be coming out as we realize that the whole ecosystem is tied together, both human and, and what's and living in the soil. And that is Rachel Carson's legacy, that knowledge. <laughs> well, let me ask you, Marie, uh, let's, let's talk about a, a book you added, a children's book to your list. Um, do you have a children's book you want to yes, recommend? Yes. Uh, it is called Here We Are, Notes for Living on Planet Earth by Oliver Jeffers, who is one of the most beloved children's book writers of our time, but this is his most personal picture book. It was inspired by the birth of his own first child, his son, and it's a kind of primer on Earth, its place in the universe, and mm. what we do on this pale blue dot that we share. And it's a book that really has the the, the feeling tone of Carl Sagan's famous pale blue dot monologue. Hmm. Interesting. Our, this is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International. It's our annual uh, book show um, with Deborah Blum and Maria Popova. Uh, Deb, speaking of our pale blue dot, a few of your choices start to form a theme, like uh, American Wolf, Life and Death of the Great Lakes, Squid Empire. W- was that intentional? I think that, yes, in part because I, it feels like a time in which we are... Literally looking at this pale blue dot that we do live on, this tiny planet in the vast universe, and say, uh, are we taking good enough care of it? it? It's such a rare and precious place, you know. How well, how are we doing as stewards of this amazing planet? So I, I did look at, uh, and I'm, I'm going to kind of lump these together in one kind of spread for a minute. Um, American Wolf by Nate Blakesley is the story of the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone, and it's just so beautifully written. Um, I, I mm-hmm. could not put the book down, even though you know it explores issues of um, politics and science and natural history and what it means to bring back an often hated species into an ecosystem and conflicts between hunters and scientists and biologists and wilderness. It, you know, it, it wraps into this incredible story uh, of wolves and who they are 
the story of how we take care of the world around us. And that is reflected in Dan Egan's book, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, which I especially love. I know you've looked at some of those issues on the show before, but I especially love it because um, you know, the Great Lakes are this amazing stretch of inland seas that many of us never see because we're clustered on the coasts. And yet there's such a remarkable part of what this country is. And, and Dan Egan does this yeah. incredible job of telling their story at a very human, individual level. I mean, he, he has an incredible gift for detail that will, will make you say, can we please save these? Mm. Yeah, because I think the Great Lakes are very undercovered. As a, as a just as an I, environmental subject, as a social place where people live, all kinds of, you know, perfect flyover country that people don't talk about. So yeah, that was the phrase that just came into my mind. And yet, if you actually stand on the shores of uh, Lake Michigan or Lake Superior, as you know, I used to live in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. which is rimmed by both of those lakes. I mean, it's breathtaking. It's like standing on the edge of the Atlantic, the, the, the sort of power and beauty and grace of those bodies of water and their ecological importance. And this book does justice both to them in that grand scheme but also in the, you know, the tiny details. There's mm-hmm. a wonderful bit about zebra mussels and when this woman scoops up what she thinks are a handful of pebbles and they start to move across her hand, right? It's just like chilling. And, and then really briefly, because you mentioned it, uh, Danistev's uh, Squid Empire um, is probably the most historical of the books that I looked at because it really goes back to the, uh, you know, pre almost the, the pre-dinosaur eras in which squids were the monsters of the earth and dominated the sea and um, and, and then chronicles the the gradual evolution into calamari well, on your dinner plate. Well, we love right? cephalopods, as, as anybody knows on this show. So I'm sorry we have to interrupt. We have to take a break. We'll come back and talk lots more with uh, Deborah Blum and Maria Popova about uh, our books. If you have a book you'd like to talk about, 844-724-8255. Tweet us at SciFry. We'll be back right after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. This, this hour, we are wrapping up the best science books of uh, 2017 with my guests, Deborah Blum, publisher of the online magazine Undark, Maria Popova, editor and founder of BrainPickings.org. Also, taking your calls and your tweets. Let me uh, go to a couple of tweets that came in. Uh, the, Leonard Grossman says, The Consequences of Ignoring Science at the Core of the Radium Girls by Kate Moore. He seemed to like that. And... Uh, uh, Joe McGonigal says, I just finished reading The Last Man Who Knew Everything, a new enjoyable bio of uh, Enrico Fermi. So hmm. a kind of interesting picks. Before we left, we were talking about the Great Lakes, and I, I know, Marie, you wanted to, to comment about that. Yeah, actually, um, the first person to write about them at length was Margaret Fuller, the great feminist who wrote Women in the 19th Century, and her first book called Summer on the Lakes really inspired the 19th century astronomer Mariah Mitchell, who paved the way for all the code girls and hidden figures. Oh, is that right? Yeah, she was a great fan of that book, and it was always in her library by her bedside. Wow. Um, um, That's wonderful. Did you know that, Deb? I didn't. I think that's wonderful, and I have to say that uh, every time I listen to Maria talk about books... 
I start making a list of books that I haven't read that I must read now. <laughs> so well, I, I stole one from really your list, but, which I want to ask about because I just <laughs> finished it. If you want to say something, I know you chose The Songs of Trees, which I too loved, and I would love to hear your um, thoughts on it. Go for it. I think part of that, thanks, is I, mean, I love David George Haskell as a writer, and I thought his previous book, The Forest Unseen, was a completely brilliant first book. And this one, I think the way that he does it, where he takes 12 species of trees and, and use them to tell the story of us and the way we relate to other species. And and again, going back to your point, Ira, about the way we're taking care of this one planet, he's a lyrical writer. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't think of anyone I would rather have as an advocate uh, or a voice for trees, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Than, than David George Haskell. We, we have the full list of what we're talking about and our recommendations at sciencefriday.com slash books if uh, you want to keep up with that and we'll keep adding to uh, new ones um, as as we go on. Uh, let's see if we're, we're kind of... Uh, okay, Here, let's, go to, let's go to Tom. Yeah, let's go to Tom in uh, St. Augustine, Florida. Hi, Tom. Hi, Ira. Um, I have a great book I read this year, uh, one of the best astrophysics books that I've ever read. And I'm, I read popular science. I'm not a scientist. But this book broke it down so well that I just had to mention it when I heard the topic of your show. It's called We Have No Idea, A Guide to the Unknown Universe by Jorge Cam and Daniel Whiteson. And they talk about uh, all the things in the universe that we have no idea why they're there or if they're there or how they work um, and their relation to us. Um, it was, and it's just full of comedy. Um, Jorge Cam is a, uh, a comics creator, and Daniel Whiteson is um, an astrophysicist. Uh, and these guys are not only very knowledgeable, but they're also really funny. And well, it was the easiest book I've read on science and, and uh, astronomy and cosmology and hmm. and uh, astrophysics ever. Now, you know, just, uh, just to show you what great taste you have, we're going to be talking about that book in, in a few weeks. So it is <laughs> one of my favorite topics because we really don't know anything about what's out there. And that's the wonderful part about doing science. And, and I have a kindred selection, yes. uh, which is also a comic, uh, but about the things we do know about the universe by the uh, theoretical physicist Clifford Johnson, who, astonishingly enough, took a semester off of his very important astrophysical job to teach himself to draw and illustrated this book himself. It's called The Dialogues, Conversations About the Nature of the Universe. And it's a kind of a visual eavesdropping on very smart people talking about things like dark matter and string theory and the multiverse. Uh, and, and the other lovely thing is that it's populated by really diverse characters of all kinds of ages, races, nationalities. He himself is a black Englishman, and he achieves this in a way that's totally unforced. Um, so it's like a sci-arts book, science it, and arts It is, book. but it's a very serious yeah. science book. Yeah, yeah. that's great. We've run out of time. Gosh, where did that hour go? I want to thank my guest, Deborah Blum, director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT and publisher of the online magazine Undark, and Maria Popova, editor and founder of BrainPickings.org. And you all have a Twitter, twi- Twitter account also, so we can follow you there. Thank you both for taking time to thank do it. Thank you so much. Happy holidays to you. Thank you.
Now, if you're a parent and you're a fan of this program, then you know that a good science children's book is a wonderful thing. We mentioned one. We're going to get into mentioning a lot of them now, it's, but it's not easy to sift the good stuff from the not-so-good stuff. So this holiday season, we're going to give you some advice from the people who know and who better to help us than a member of our esteemed education team, Sochi Garcia. Welcome, Sochi. It's nice to be here. And uh, let, let's talk about uh, what, what, how did you, how did you just decide what, what to choose? What criteria did you use? First of all, I have to say it's so hard. There are so many amazing science-themed children's books that are coming out. It's an increasing flow every year. Um, it's becoming really popular. But basically, I used three criteria. One, we looked for scientific accuracy in the books um, as well as we could. There are fictional narratives that take some license, mm -hmm. of course. Um, then we looked at the journey, whether illustrations brought that science to life or whether the story was something that could be really easily folded into a kid's mind. And then we looked at engagement. So how engaging was the text for the learner or the child after reading it? So what could they do afterwards? Yeah. And you had a, log, a large uh, age range in your I book did. choices, right? Yeah, all the way from zero to age 11. So children's literature is amazing because it spans such a wide developmental range. So it's it's really cool to read how books change over over the course of those age ranges. I want to bring on a few other authors uh, who made a list, uh, that made our list of best science books for kids. Uh, let me bring them on now. Dominic Wallman is the author of the Professor Astro Cat book series. And Diana Hutz Aston is author of A Nest is Noisy and other books. Uh, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having me here. Now we have these Thank books. You, Ira. You're welcome. We have these books in our office, and we keep all jockeying each other to to read them. <laughs> so <laughs> we have to pry them out of Sochi's hand as she's looking through them. Um, uh, Diana, how do you come up with the ideas for your books? Like uh, a seed is sleepy, a nest is noisy. Okay, I'll tell you how it started out. Um, an egg is quiet was the first one, and it kind of went crazy, and that came about because. All my life, I don't know why, my mother would tell me this story, and it's dedicated to her. Remember that time your best friend's little brother was, he was three years old, and he was in school, and the teacher said, tell us a little something about eggs, Dusty. And he thought, and he goes, an egg is quiet. And so my mom, to, I, didn't, I didn't remember the story, but all through the years, my mom would tell me that little story. And let's see. One May, I was in my yard and picking up eggshells and just going, why is, why is one blue? Why is one speckled? Cut to the, the chase. My manuscript landed up on Victoria Rock's desk at Chronicle Books just when she was looking for um, an egg book for illustrator Sylvia Long. So that's kind huh. of what, what kicked it off. And then my agent, uh, Rosemary Stamola, said, how about one on seeds? And then, but, but did you did you did you realize you were writing science books at the time you had these? Oh, <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't even know I was writing science books until uh, an egg is quiet. Won what's called the American Association for the Advancement of Science (AAAS) and slash Subaru, the car makers, and that's when they hmm. they contacted me and said, "You've won the science book," and I said, "Science book." I write science. I'm just writing about what I love. <laughs> well, to all of a lot of us, that's science stuff that we love. Let me bring yeah. it down. Dominic. Dominic, you have a science background, hey. right? Uh, did, did you plan to go into the children's book business? 
No, I didn't really plan on it. But a friend who's an illustrator, um, Ben Newman, who illustrates the books, he got me involved uh, when he had the opportunity to draw the books. And I jumped at the chance when I did because I love um, science communication, explaining science to people, telling people about all the things that I've learned. And, and your your book is based around a character called Professor Astrocat. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you know That's how much right. information to include so, so that the kids can understand it? Yeah, that's that's often a challenge. Um, I am fortunate. I've got um, a couple of nieces who are around the exact age range when I was writing all of the books, and so I'd mad imagine uh, explaining science to the, them and and um, trying to yeah think about how they would take the information. So it's a lot of um, hmm. yeah imagination, and then talking to them about science as well helps me a lot. So, Sochi, what made you put these books on your list? Well, I'll start with The Nest is Noisy because this book can really be read in a bunch of different ways. It's It's got a poem stretching through the pages of the book, so you could just read the poem and study the illustrations. Um, it reminded me of Beatrix Potter, who I loved when I was growing up. And these, these illustrations by Sylvia Long are really... The attention mm -hmm. to detail for nature is amazing. She is a, what I would call a naturalist, similar to Beatrix Potter in that vein. And then also the descriptions provided by Diana are um, just really informative in like these tidbit ways that are that suit like children, young children love these little, little factoids that they can bring out. Um, and then the Astro Cat series, um, immediately when I presented them to the kids in my life, they were captivated by the illustrations of Ben Newman and and after we finished reading the solar system book they were like I didn't know Mars had the biggest mountain in the in our solar system and and all of these little facts that made them in our age of technology want to go online and explore further and that's what you want out of a science children's book is not just staying with the book we have so much information at our at our fingertips so you can go further and these books definitely light the flame of inquiry in, in kids, we, we got a whole series of books, and I'm trying now I'm going to have a senior moment. I can't remember the author, but I'm sure you will. But the baby books. Yeah, so... Particle physics for babies. Yeah, I mean, I, that's the Baby University series by Chris Ferry. Um, he's, uh, he, right now he's in Sydney, Australia. But he writes these books on, on like large concepts for very, very young kids and I think the point of the books is not necessarily that they're going to learn quantum physics from the book it's that even kids at a young age can have the language of science in their vocabulary so as they develop and as they're learning words it's awesome that they learn the word electron or neutron or they learn about general relativity and some of that may stick mm -hmm. and some of it may not but with his newest book rocket science for babies you can definitely take that off the page and i know we talked about this because rocket science is <laughs> principles of flight is one of your my things. favorite topic why and, airplanes fly <laughs> and it's accurately represented right i think that's yes, one of the things yes, that hit us yes they did it the right way he's a physicist and he made sure and and one of the things that I respect about publishers of children's books, and this is more in the like late 90s, early, like now in, in our time period, is that they bring on scientists to review the science in a lot of the books they publish. And so we do have a book like Grand Canyon by Jason Chin, where the back is full of citations and other facts mm. you might want to know because he cares that you have something further to go on and that it's accurate. So it's amazing. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International.
talking uh, with my guests, Sochi Garcia, Dominic Wallerman, and uh, Diana Hutz. Um, and, of course, we have all these books on our website at sciencefriday.com uh, slash books. Uh, we, let's go to the phones. Let's see if we can get one call in. Time is, time is, whoops, time's rushing. Hi, let's go to Na- Natalie in Pittsburgh. Hi, Natalie. Hey, thanks for taking my call. So um, when my son was young, we read a lot of those science books, um, you know, just like you're recommending. And so now what I'm looking for is, do you have any middle grade science recommendations? Um, he just finished reading The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. And, um, and and loved it. Um, he read the, um, there, there's a book called Bomb that it, you know, goes through the entire, you know, the invention and the ramifications of the atomic bomb. But I just wondered if you, um, if you had any recommendations for 11, 12, um, 13 year olds? Yeah, there is a great book that just came out called Ruby Goldberg's Bright Idea. Actually, I'm really excited about this book. I didn't write it because it didn't quite fit in our age range, but um, it's basically about this girl who's an inventor and she's in middle school and and her trials and tribulations. But along the way, they talk about Rube Goldberg machines and kind of the spirit of invention. So I would highly recommend that book mm-hmm. by Anna Humphrey, by the way. Anna Humphrey, okay. We've, uh, we've read just about, is there one book? From, I may ask all my guests that, that you can't live without this holiday season. You got to have. A beetle is shy. A beetle is shy. <laughs> it's so good. Tell us about that. Well, that was also, um, it was a AAAS Subaru Award winner, too. And let's see, Sylvia Long and I love beetles. We love rocks. We love nests, all of the things that we've written about. But I think what I like most about this book, in addition to the illustrations, is its dedication. And it's dedicated to the ladybug warriors, and that's who I consider guys can be ladybugs too. Um, all of us who who mimic ladybugs that go around quietly and beautifully eating up all the stuff that would destroy the aphids that would destroy our food supply. And I think it's really time in this world that we go we go about quietly and beautifully or not so quietly with our art and our science and our technology and engineering and math mm-hmm. and concerts and do beautiful things to round up people to remember the earth because I think you attract ladybugs attract more attention than um, any other kind of camouflage. All right, I'm going to leave it right there because we've running out, running, running out of time. Diana Hutz, Aston, author of A Nest is Noisy. Dominic Wallman is author of the Professor Astro Cat book series and Sochi Garcia, education program assistant to and invaluable to us here at Science Friday. Thank you all. Thank you, Eric. Thank Thanks you, for having today. Thanks. Uh, one thing before we go, uh, we're gathering your stories about what a science, what science story mattered most to you this year. Which one mattered most to you, like this one? Hi, this is Bill from Raleigh, North Carolina. The most important science story for me would be the August 21st solar eclipse. As a science teacher and being 35 years old, this was the first eclipse I could see, and this was a joy and a pleasure to share this experience through telescopes and eclipse glasses for myself and my students. So it's our year in review show, December 29th. We want you to call in and tell us what science story mattered most to you this year and why. 
our number 567-243-2456. Again, record it just like he did. 567-243-2456. And uh, thank you all. Charles Berkowitz is our director, senior producer, Christopher Taliata. Producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, and Katie Heiler. We had technical help from Rich Kim, Sarah Fishman, and Jack Horowitz. And if you're still looking for the perfect holiday gift, check out our store, sciencefriday.com slash store. T-shirts, mugs, even clocks, everything you need for a gift for Science Friday weekend. I'm Ira Flato in New York.